0: My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international law. In this week's podcast, I consider the history of international law. I focus primarily on two key points in time. On one hand, Christopher Columbus arrives in Hispaniola and poses a question to a Spanish theologian jurist by the name of Francisco de Vitoria. The question is, what can he do with the Indians? De Vitoria goes about constructing what is termed at the time Gentium, or the Law of Nations. So we see this as an embryonic point for modern international law. Next, we examine the Peace of Westphalia. Peace of Westphalia came about at the end of the Thirty Years' War between Protestants and Catholics within the European region. Following this was the establishment then of what today exists as our nation-state system that was born just after the Peace of Westphalia. So I explained these two embryonic points and the influence that they have had on international law, then moving on to the role that colonialism has played in shaping the framework as well. Alright, so we're in week two then of international law. Week two, we are going to continue now with or we're going to continue with the problem that I had posed to you um, toward the end of the last session. Now some of you might have forgotten it so let me refresh your memories. Remember what I drew? It was a diagram in which I said on one hand on one hand we have, or on one side we have European lands Separating this, then, are a series of waters, so the seas, the oceans and such. Then we arrive at other lands. You can think of the Americas. consider then, the continent of Africa, go beyond that and such. So we have this division here. Now, Europe, on one hand, is regarded, according to international law that was devised at the time, as being sovereign. The waterways in the middle described as terra communis and the other lands terra nullius. Now what is interesting about these lands and these lands is that both of them are inhabited inhabited by peoples, peoples with communities, with societies, with different ways of being, ways of living. Yet according to the international law of the time, these lands here are sovereign. This is effectively the common heritage of humanity. So common land, common waters, obviously. And then this is vacant land. And vacant land is susceptible to discovery, to settlement, and ultimately to conquest. Discovery, settlement, Conquest. Now the question that I posed to you was, how did international law distinguish between one set of lands and the other? How did it go about doing this? And even consider the words that I just used. What could you do in terra nullius? You could discover it. You could settle it. But what could you also do? Conquer it. But how do you conquer land that is vacant? There's this open space in front of me here. Ha ha! I have conquered this open land. Have I really conquered it? There is no duality. I haven't engaged in any type of struggle, any type of strife. Conquest requires then someone on the other side who is perhaps unwelcoming or disinterested in my settlement, is opposed to my discovery is opposed to the various activities that I want to engage in in their lands. But this is where we have international law distinguishing between sovereign lands and terra nullius. Now I pose that question, how is it possible that international law has distinguished between lands in that manner? Anyone want to venture an answer? Something you would have reflected on over the weekend? I hinted at the answer as well. Right, so, to reiterate for those who didn't hear, what did she say? She said that international law mediates relations between sovereign states. If these lands happen to be terra nullius, it means simply they do not have a sovereign. And if they do not have a sovereign, then it's not possible for any type of law to mediate, meaning they're available for discovery, settlement, and conquest. Your classmate is on point international law, as it applies, depends very much on the definition of sovereignty that you advance. What are the conditions then for a people to be sovereign? And the debates at the time had to do very much as to whether or not these, which is referred to the inhabitants of the Americas, that were referred to as Indians back in the day, whether the Indians were sovereign whether they were sovereign. So that is one part of the answer. And your classmate is on point, And we're going to explore that in a minute. But before we get to that, consider then the form of law that I mentioned to you that most of you had never heard of before. You'd heard of state law. You've heard of transnational law. You certainly heard of either municipal law or national law or supranational law. But the one type you didn't hear about was outer state law or outer law, as it was referred to at the time. Now, what is outer state law? Remember then, recall the diagram that I drew. Outer state law, laws that apply beyond the sovereign's borders. This is effectively the sovereign proclaiming, declaring how they are going to behave beyond their own lands. Now, in this case, Europe, that ultimately became the author of modern international law, declared how it would treat non-European lands. And so according to international law, which was crafted then by Europe, Europe was sovereign and non-European lands were terra nullius. Simple as that. So in this case to understand the origins of international law, it is necessary for you to engage with the emergence of the nation-state. I told you the end of the Thirty-Year War. We ceased to self-identify as merely Catholics and Protestants, but now we're identifying with states. England, France, Poland, so on. That is one part. The next part is to understand that there were relations taking place between European states. And these relations that were happening between European states were obviously transnational, international. They were going through their borders. Meaning that as we created the nation state system through the peace of Westphalia, We also, in that same moment, gave birth to international law. But we also gave birth to outer state law. Outer state law, which was merely a refurbished version of imperial law. Now what do I mean by that? Well, what did we have prior to nation states? There were empires. That was it. And empires had their laws that applied to them and had their laws that applied beyond them. And that was it. There was nothing more to it. They were the empire. And so every law that they crafted that extended beyond their lands was effectively outer law. And the nation state merely borrowed from that form at the point of origin of International law. So, to understand that point of origin, to understand the birth of international law, necessary to understand the nation state, necessary to understand the concept of outer state law as well. Now, the third element that you have to understand is precisely conquest what took place between Europe and the rest. Now, much of international law is derived from two scholars modern international law, derived from two scholars. First scholar by the name of Francisco de Vitoria, Vitoria for short, V-I-T-O-R-I-A, Vitoria. And the one I mentioned the other day, Hugo Grotius, G-R-O-T-I-U-S, those two. Very different scholars, different periods in time, Grotius building on the work and tweaking the work of Vitoria. Now, Vitoria, was a jurist, but also a theologian within the Catholic Church. And Vittoria was approached by Columbus with a question. And the question was, what can I do with the Indians? That crass, that vulgar, that blatant. What am I permitted to do with the Indians? Now, picture this. You are Christopher Columbus. You are setting sail across the waters. You are in search of treasure. You are in search of gold. You are in search of spices, resources, all kinds of commodities of value that you can bring back to Ferdinand in Spain. This is what you're trying to do. Ferdinand is funding this and you're saying then you're making a promise as Columbus that you will come back with treasures. You arrive in Hispaniola, where Columbus first landed. Beaches, beautiful beaches, beautiful palm trees, very nice pineapples, excellent. I need a little bit more than this to bring back to Fernand. And lo and behold, there are some natives, some inhabitants, some inhabitants who come up and say, yes, we do have treasures, and point them in direction of all the gold, all the silver, all the precious stones, the precious gems that they have. Now Columbus is facing these people when all he expected to find were treasures. But there were people who possessed these treasures. And the question then that Columbus had, and is a question that he posed to Vittoria as one of the leading Catholic theologians, jurists of the time. What can I do with the Indians? Meaning, what are our responsibilities towards them? What, do, what rights do we possess in relation to them? in relation to their lands, in relation to the goods that they themselves possess. So this is the question then that he poses to Vittoria. Now, Vittoria was what could be referred to at the time as a progressive. What do I mean by that? Most people, most theologians and jurists of that time, would have simply dismissed the Indians as savages. Why? What did the Indians lack? Precisely, they were not, there we go, simple as that. They were not Christians because they were not Christians, they were savages. Those theologians were not behaving maliciously, rather they were applying divine law. And divine law, as it was interpreted at that time, distinguished between believers and non-believers, meaning everyone else. So you come across these indigenous peoples, the indigenous inhabitants of Hispaniola, and what are you finding? Well, obviously non-Christians. So as far as most theologians were concerned, you were dealing with savages. They were the equivalent as if you arrived and you came across a pack of animals. Nothing more. Does a pack of animals have any rights to the land? Not at all. A pack of animals cannot have any rights. Why? They're animals. So then, Vittori, as I said, is a progressive. He doesn't appreciate that logic. And he takes a different approach. He says the Indians possess a method to their affairs. There is a method. Now, if I were to look at a pack of animals, is there a method? Well, there is a system in operation, but that system is largely born of intuition. They act as They are, some might say, programmed to act. They behave in the way that animals behave. But with humans, then, we say method, as there is some reflection, there are acts of cognition associated with it. They are thinking about how they are going to structure relations, how they structure authority, how they structure notions of ownership. And he says, their methods might be different from our own, but there is a method in place. And because there is a method in place, they possess reason. Key word here, reason. They possess reason. Now, Vittoria uses this opportunity. Once he makes that determination that this group of non-Christians has a method, in their social organization, that they possess reason, that they are now bound, just like the Spaniards are, they are now bound by the law of nations. Or what he calls jus gentium, the law of nations. They are now bound by the law of nations because they are a, a people endowed with reason and all peoples endowed with reason, are bound by this universal, natural law of nations. Notice those two key qualifiers, universal and natural. Now, as soon as you hear universal and natural, what do you think? First off, when you hear universal, what comes to mind? Right, it's applicable everywhere, it's universal. So it doesn't matter where you happen to be, it doesn't matter if you're Christian or non-Christian, the condition is, the criterion, is you are a people endowed with reason. And if you are a people endowed with reason, you are bound by the law of nations. But what's the second part? Natural. What does that mean? Right? Obvious, self-evident, there's that element to it, certainly, it's not governed by people, where does it come from, where does it emanate? From God, potentially, because notice, we already had from God, with divine law. But Vittori is distinguishing himself from divine law and saying this law does not exist in God, this law exists in nature, All right, from reason. And that reason is in nature. That means that it exists apart from us. Now notice what I said to you last week. I said to you that international law was transactional that we were negotiating as nation states on behalf of ourselves with each other reaching points of compromise and this is how we would voluntarily qualify our sovereignty. Now that is the representation of international law today but at the birth of international law we were dealing with jus Gentium that was based not on transaction but rather in nature, in nature, meaning it exists external to us. And what did this us this law of nature, command? According to Vittoria, it guaranteed the right to trade, the right to settle, wait for it, the right to proselytize. Anyone know that word? Some of you must. Precisely, the right to convert. Now think of what we said before. Vittoria is a progressive, he is recognizing that non-Christian cosmologies are legitimate. You don't have to be a Christian to be endowed with reason. Just because you are not a Christian does not make you a savage. But in the law of nature, you have the right then to settle, you have the right to trade, and you also have the right to proselytize, meaning to convert. And what does Vittoria also say? that in this law, because this exists in nature, no one is permitted to resist. Any resistance to settlement, any resistance to trade, any resistance to conversion amount to acts of war. You're smiling, why? Clever, right? Very clever. You create these rights not in God. It's not based on divine justice. So we're saying that it doesn't just apply then to Christians. Because of course, at the time, you had the rise of other empires, non-Christian empires, that could pose a challenge, particularly since this Catholic empire is now going to be engaged in relations with it. So we break away then from divine law. And instead, what we craft is a law of nations for all peoples endowed with reason. And even the Indians, the indigenous, the natives, even them, even they are endowed with reason. And because they are endowed with reason, they are bound by the law of nations. And the law of nations guarantees those three rights. And they're not just rights, they are responsibilities in that you have to allow the others to engage in these practices. So very clever, yes. And what did Vittoria say? He said, we are permitted to do this in Hispaniola just as, and you can read this in the speeches themselves which we had rec- record of, the natives are allowed to do this in Spain. Now the fact that they were incapable of any type of transoceanic travel was irrelevant. The mere possibility that they could because this exists in law, was sufficient. So in the end, any resistance by the natives to incursions by the Spaniards were not merely treated as immoral, they were treated as unlawful, violations of international law. Now Columbus hears all of this and he says, "'Okay, I understand, I get it. "'They're endowed with reason, they have method, "'I'm still allowed to settle, I am still allowed to trade, I can bring priests to try to convert them, and any resistance they put up are acts of war, and Vittoria is explicit about this, that can be met with enslavement, genocide. He uses that word, genocide. Any resistance whatsoever. Now, don't just have an emotional reaction to this. I'm not presenting this in a way to say that Vittoria or Columbus are barbarians. That is not the point. The point here is to understand the origins of international law and how the origins of international law begin with Europe and Europe's desire to acquire control over these other lands. That is the starting point. So Columbus says, fine and dandy, are the Indians sovereign? That's his question, his subsequent question. I hear all that you're saying, but are they sovereign? Now recall, this is happening then, when we're thinking at when this is happening. This is happening in the 16th century. This is pre-30 year war. This is pre-Peace of Westphalia, meaning pre-nation state. So are they sovereign is the question that he asks. Vittoria answers that question with another question. Fascinating again. And if you smiled at the previous one, you'll smile at this one a little bit more. He asks, can the Indians wage a just war? We're trying to determine if the Indians are sovereign. We're saying, are they sovereign? They are endowed with reason, we've got that. There is a method to their system of social organization, we've got that. They are bound by us gentium, very good. Are they sovereign? In response, Vittoria says, can they wage a just war? Well, what is the answer to that question? Well, presumably someone asks another question, which is, well, who is capable of waging, not war, because anyone can wage war, who is capable of waging a just war, meaning a moral war? Christians, precisely. Christians are the only ones who are capable of waging a just war. And Vittoria says, if that weren't the case, then he refers to the Saracens, which would then be the predecessors to the Ottoman Empire, which would be Muslims. He says, otherwise, they might think that even they are capable of waging a just war. But it is not possible for non-Christians to wage a just war. What kind of logic is that, for anyone who has studied philosophy or studied logic? Anyone heard of this word before? Tautological? What does it mean? Precisely, circular reasoning. So, who is capable of waging a just war? Christians. Why? Because only Christians can wage a just war. You know, do you really think you would get a first in this module if that was your reasoning, right? Chances are you would fail out of law school if you came at it with this logic. It is tautological. It is circular. So the premise then is the basis for the conclusion. So what then does Vittoria do? And this is key, a key lesson then from this discussion. He uses a cultural criterion, a cultural criterion, cultural then being the Christianity, so their faith, their religion, and such. He uses that as the basis to deny the sovereignty of a group of people, meaning, They're not like us. So by the mere fact of not being like us, they are precluded from being sovereign. How then, for the logicians in the room, how then can the indigenous acquire sovereignty? Conversion. You need to become like us. And if you become like us, you acquire sovereignty. That is it. So this is where, and there's a key phrase that I will use here, it's one that I am fond of, and it's one I've been using for a number of years. It is an instance where European subjectivity is presenting itself as universal objectivity. European subjectivity is presenting itself as universal objectivity. And I'm sure for anyone here who has studied global history international relations political studies you can think of instances where you are saying there seem to be some double standards in operation and so long as the other comes to resemble europe then their behavior is legitimate but if they choose another path a non-european path then it is deemed illegitimate history is littered with this And that point of origin is with the birth of international law. Europe arrogated to itself the privilege of universality, universalizing the self. So we see then that universalism, the universalism of international law, remember what I said, it's a universal, natural law of nations. That universalism is used for definitional purposes to define then the jurisdiction of the law of nations to anyone endowed with reason. So for definitional purposes, but also for differentiation, differentiational purposes. We are trying to distinguish then between those who are sovereign and those who are not. As Europe constituted itself as sovereign using cultural criteria, then it simply met that any other culture that did not mimic, some might say did not ape, Europe, were not just deemed different, they were deemed non-sovereign. And because they were non-sovereign, then what was now lawful according to the law of nations? Conquest. Conquest then appears This is not an aberration, this is not a violation, this is part of the establishment of international law, devised in large part to legitimize this practice. Now this brings us then to the topic of this week, and the topic of this week, which we're going to discuss for a quarter of an hour today, and then in our subsequent session on Thursday, is on the theory of international law. And it is essential that we begin with that history because the history points us then to Euscentium. Euscentium, which we said exists in what? Exists in nature. Exists in nature, meaning all peoples endowed with reason are bound by it. And it doesn't matter if you happen to be a Christian, or sorry, a Catholic, or a Protestant. It doesn't matter if you happen to be a Muslim a Hindu or a Jew. It doesn't matter if you happen to have a non-Abrahamic cosmology faith. If you are endowed with reason, you are bound by it because this exists in nature and all of us are bound by nature. Now often when I begin a lecture on theory, you will notice then, or even if I just use that word, everyone kind of sit back and they sink into their seats. And I often think that they're just trying then to lean back to get comfortable because they know this is gonna be a good moment to take a nap. When in fact theory is essential, not just for your understanding of international law, but for your understanding of law in general. Now I've made this case before and I will make it to you now. What is the importance of studying theory? It is the importance of studying the nature of law. Now what I mean by this will become clear with a couple of examples. If you do not understand the theory underpinning a law, then all you have is the law itself. Now what do I mean? Each one of you has parents in some form or another. Now your parents have raised you in some form or another. But what I can be certain of is that your parents, irrespective of how uh, hippie they may have been, always had some authority over you. To the extent that if you were to go running towards the street, they would stop you. Now, they would stop you because they had a responsibility to do so, but also because they had the authority to do so. Those two elements. And you recognize that authority, and most young people, up to a certain age at least, comply with the demands of their parents. Now do we require a law for that? This again is something that exists in nature and has to do with the biological bonds that we share and the level of development that we achieve and as we continue to develop as our cognition matures then we begin to differentiate but at that early stage we don't differentiate we merely comply. Now that's built in nature. There are laws around parenting but the extent of the enforcement of those laws Is up for debate. Why? Why are those not the kind of laws that the police will be breaking down doors to enforce unless we're dealing with instances of outright violence? Why not? Why don't you expect to receive on a weekly basis visits from a social worker? How's the homework coming along? Have your parents prepared good meals for you? Are you dressed properly? Why is there not that type of oversight? Precisely we start there's the presumption then that A parent is going to look after their child. So it would be us squandering a series of resources if we were to establish this oversight system. There is a presumption then that a parent will care for a child. There's that element to it. It exists in nature. What else? What are some of the other reasons that might be? Yes? Personal Personal freedom. Anyone want to expand on that? Well presumably some of you intend on having children eventually. And some of you might take issue with a social worker coming to visit you once a week to check up up on your parenting practices. There are some things that we demand autonomy over, and how we rear children is one of those. Why? Again, that biological element then to it. But here's the thing. The approach that we take towards rearing children today is very different from what it was a generation ago, is very different from what it was a generation prior to that. All of these have evolved. One thing that is clear about when it comes to rearing children is that rearing children is fluid. There are some core responsibilities associated with it, keep the child alive, but beyond that there is some fluidity. Should they go to school or should they work? What age should they get married at? Do they have responsibility towards me financially, or do I have responsibility towards them? All of these are in flux, and they vary as societies evolve. And those evolutions almost happen organically. So for us to intervene with the law would require, or would introduce an element of artificiality, as we try to control a type of social evolution that happens with time. Now that is the nature of parenting. We accept then that things will evolve. We choose not to intervene with codes, with statutes, with legal obligations. They exist, but they exist mostly on paper. But notice that when it comes to relations between states, we say no. We're not going to let that just evolve. We are going to establish rules. We are going to establish treaties we are going to codify obligations. And we want these to be concrete, explicit, evident, clear, enforceable? Debatable there. So this is when I say we study the theory of law, you are studying why in some aspects of social relations, we say laws are imperative. But then in other aspects of social relations, we say let's keep the law out of it. We take different approaches towards different social relations. And the question then becomes, why? I give you another example and then we'll move on to how this applies to international law. The right to equality. I said to you last week that most people support the right to equality. They believe that everyone should be treated equally. We have laws upon laws and we've had laws in place for three or four generations now. And yet I don't think a single person in this room would make the case that we are in fact equal. Formally, perhaps, but substantively, certain not. And the types of inequalities that we see across the whole of society, widespread. But the law says that we're equal. So why is that not enough? Why has that not altered social relations? We've changed the law to codify equality, and yet we still remain, or what remains a part of our society is racism, sexism, misogyny, Privilege, so inequalities. How is that possible then? But we've created the laws. The laws say so. You must behave. And most people comply with the law most of the time. How has the law not changed our perception, our experience of equality? Tough question to answer, right? This is where, again, the nature of law. There are some things that law can do. Prohibit smoking, for example. Relatively straightforward. A generation ago, some of you would have been puffing up. I might have even been puffing up during a lecture. Today, people have to stand how many meters away from the building to have a cigarette? Three meters. So how quick that answer was, right? Here's my first first. So law is capable of actualizing some things, but not capable of actualizing others. Which is why when you study law, it's not just studying what the law is. Because if all you focus on is what the law is, then you yourself are effectively studying, key phrase here, you are studying the prejudices, the preferences of the previous generation. If all you study is the law, then what you are studying are the prejudices and preferences of the previous generation. The previous generation is the one that has given rise to the laws that are in place today. Not you, and to a great extent, not me either. Which is why when you're studying contract law, how many generations back do you go? Six generations? You're looking at cases from the 1850s? And that still holds as law. So in this instance, it's not about studying the law, but the nature of law. Why some social relations we engage in can be tweaked, altered, reversed entirely by law, and yet others cannot be touched. So apply this then to international law. When we are studying theory, and this is what we're going to look at on Thursday, there are two key questions that we ask. Two questions. The first one, why do we choose to intervene in certain social relations through law? And obviously, and others not. That's the first question. The second question is whether the regulation of that social relation through law is effective. Whether the regulation of that social relation through law is effective. These are the two key questions that we're asking. Why have we chosen to use law? And two, is it even effective? So the example of equality, three generations of equality laws, four now, really. Is it effective? Economic inequality widening, Political equality shrinking? Sort of. So maybe it proves effective with political equality, but ineffective with economic. First question, why do we choose? Regulating then smoking, driving, these type of practices, behavioral things that we engage in, we regulate those by law. Parenting, do we regulate this by law? Sort of. Why do we take a qualified approach towards one? and an absolute approach towards another. Now what I find with students is that students often shy away from these type of questions because we say, ah, I don't know what the answer is. It is too difficult to get to the answer. But understand, and this is what I will leave you on, it is not about the answer. We are merely trying to understand the nature of law and why law then as a discipline and as an instrument is itself fluid. How we apply it in some situations varies from how we apply it in others. Which is why, and this is what I conclude on, last week I said to you to understand international law you have to understand municipal law, state domestic law, that one type. You also must understand supranational law. You must also understand outer-state law, international law, and transnational law. Those different types But those different types are entirely different. That was a terrible sentence. (laughs) (laughs) They are very different in that how they are created is different. How they are enforced is different. How they are operationalized or practiced is different. So with all those differences, how can they all be law? It's a genuine question. And that's the question that I end on, and I want you to reflect on, and we'll try to answer it on Thursday. If all of those are different forms, how can they all be law? So leave it at that and see you then on Thursday.